Sheila, welcome. And I want to ask you if you wouldn't mind doing a little self-introduction, since um, that's appreciated by our Facebook listeners. Okay. Um, I'm based in Spenard, and that's been my home base for now about 20 years. And I work primarily in sculptural um, systems, um, a lot of uh, found objects and, and putting together various different sorts of materials. Um, also do set design for theater and um, public artwork, art installations, and um, site-specific types of work, whether it's performance artwork, working with other collaborators, or, or just um, on my own stuff. And Sheila, yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, how did you get into doing simultaneous things like that at once? Set design, public artwork, studio exhibits, did it all kind of happen um, simultaneously? Or were, were you um, kind of more a studio artist before you became really drawn from one to the, to the next? How did that build for you? Well, it's kind of a natural progression for me. Um, and I think it's mainly because um, when, I, when I initially started, I was working in clay. And I just kept having questions that couldn't be answered by that material. So, so then I flipped, rather than looking at the material, like trying to focus on a certain material, I flipped the association. And I put the question first, and then I looked around for the best material that would answer that question. So by doing that, I basically, everything's available for me in that way. I'm kind of greedy that way, I guess. Um, so I'll work, um, you know, in just about anything. If, if it answers the question and whether the question is about the site or the opportunity or um, some, something specific, you know, in that regard. So that's, a, that's allowed me to work in a, a lot of different materials. And, and then of course, there's also, you know, since I work for myself, you, you just naturally wear a lot of different hats. So when, when other opportunities come up, like um, set design, for example, Perseverance Theater was um, one of the first theaters that contacted me and it was like, oh, set design, that could be really interesting because my background is in literature and I just thought that theater might be a really great intersection of my two interests, one which is reading and the other which is uh, visual art, you know, and so being able to almost make um, art installations on stage. So, so when you wear a lot of different hats, you also just sort of grab at certain opportunities when they come along, whether you're qualified or not quite frankly. Yeah. Do you remember what questions were inviting you from clay into other materials um, at the time you made the transition you described? Um, part of it would have been um, the process with clay. It, uh, it was just too limited. I think I was already thinking in terms of uh, installation orientation you know, I wanted to do bigger things. And clay in general is um, a much more uh, limited in scale 
you know, and, and it, it, it was also quite heavy in, in terms of um, just what it is, but also heavy in terms of the process, you know, where you, where you would need so much more equipment, which is fine when you're, you know, working out of a, a university setting, but as soon as one would go off on one's own, you've got to have kilns, you've got to have this, you've got to have that. There, there was just a lot of stuff that was necessary. And, but before I even left the university system, I was already uh, starting to work with other materials that would allow me to work on larger scale things. Because I liked, liked the idea of being enveloped you know, in, in something. And, and, but there were certain things about clay that I liked very much, which was the, the tactile nature of it, you know? And, and I think that in particular has really carried through with um, a lot of my work, you know, that sort of being able to touch things and manipulate things and all of that. Yeah, when I think about three series that you're working on at the moment, you know, you're painting, you're like, apparently riveting, bolting, possibly welding. And then you have these interesting, uh, all of it sort of incorporates assemblage. So it's, you're really one of the most physical artists I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, I like, uh, I like the physicality of, of finding things that have their own story that I can then incorporate into my own story, you know, because I, I think that that layering of, 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 his, of a historical nature of like finding an old sign that can be reconfigured for my purposes, it also though brings along its own history with it. So it, it just creates, a, for me, a, a deeper reservoir of story. Mm -hmm. I'm also curious about what else is sort of the imperative around repurposing, because that's such a critical thing. I mean, I remember a few years back when you replaced the roof on your studio, and it seemed <laughs> to me you repurposed like every single bit of the, the broken, sort of like desiccated roof into numerous things that ranged from like wings mm -hmm. to panels. What, what is that imperative about repurposing and reinventing things? What, what's, what's that really? Well, the roof was just really cool, you know? It's, it's cool things. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a sucker for cool things, I think. You know, the textures on that. And then, and then finding out more from uh, the roofer guys that my old tar roof had this, this really um, bad... Um, it, it was in such a poor state that it, it had gotten to the point where they called it allegation because it had this sort of alligator, you know, texture on the top of it. But, but the wordplay that they didn't even think about, I just found so fascinating, you know. So, so when, when I find something and then I learn something about it from, from a technical point of view that, that is used in that profession like roofing, where it's like, oh, allegation, that has so many different connotations. And it, it just starts my mind, you know, kind of buzzing around. Yeah. So you have, in addition to these three series, you really have like, it seems to me, and, and please elaborate and correct me, three themes that are going on. One is about um, 
you know, this, this artistic um, invention and inquiry that's really based on and informed by the materials themselves. And then you have this alchemical impulse, this transformational impulse, which it seems like you identify in like the allegation of the roof. It's something that's almost already underway that you kind of elucidate or elaborate somehow and take, you know, to uh, um, all different sort of um, permutations and levels. Hmm. Then hmm. there's this... And then there's this issue of art in the Anthropocene. It's, it's, it's sort of like, um, where, are we, where are we going? And I guess I'm curious about your response to that and then maybe how you can walk us through some of those, um, some of those inquiries. Sure, sure. Um, the, uh, the three series kind of cover um, like where we've been where we are currently and then and then a version of way way into the future and um it's not really uh i'm not making a stand so much it's, it's not a polemic it's just what i do best is like make work you know so i'm i'm really more of just exploring the situation we find ourselves in um and trying to tease out more details of, of our situation from that. So um, it, you know, so it goes from, from trying to make something beautiful out of, of what's brought us to this place. It's also trying to uh, tease out some of our psychological stances for where we are right now. And, and then, then I'm pretty fascinated by uh, where we've been, particularly as a state with certain choices that we've made within the last 50 years. So, so there's just, I'm just sort of moving around those areas, you know, thinking about stuff like that. Would you like to take us through the um, kind of the uh, move, the areas of movement, <laughs> the inquiry, if you will? Um, okay. Which do you which should go first? Do you think the the, the walkabout or just the imagery? Mm. I'm really open to you on that. For the walkabout, are we going to do that in um, PowerPoint? Or no, that one would be the that be the what the the gallery did the 3D. Yeah. Let's try that first because I feel like we'll be able to get closer to the works in your keynote. So maybe we okay. can get the big picture through the gallery view. Okay, let's see if this if I can get this to go. So this is we're we're gonna um, explore this technology which international gallery is using to give people a three D tour of their exhibits. I'm I'm really keen on bringing this to Benel and Homer, especially during these times. I think it's a a great way to. Yeah, especially if you can't, you know, go and visit the site your first. So if you, uh, for those of you who've been to the International, they have three galleries. And in the center gallery here is what's called, what I call the Stratus series. And it's a combination of two different approaches, but it all uses the same material, which is uh, leftover signage. 
that I've re-manipulated. Some are, let me see if I can get this right. Some of them are, um, you know, where I've, I've been folding and cutting and creating these, these layers or strata using um, the signage in terms of its size, its, its fabrication, the way I've bent it, the coloration, and the text. Mm-hmm. And then some of it, let's move on over here. Then, then I also did some that are using the cutoffs where it's still, it's still strata, stratified, but it's uh, using it as a mosaic. And part of the reason this all happened was because two years ago, I took a, a 21 day rafting trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And it's just such a fantastic thing for anybody in the creative field to do. I highly recommend it because it's, um, uh, you're traveling back in time, literally like a billion years. It's, it's an amazing feat. And, and the, the layers of strata that, that one can see and one can witness is, is really extraordinary. So here's another mosaic. There are three mosaics in this and uh, four, four pieces that are, are more of a, of a fabrication. And it's amazing how dimensional the mosaics look. You're saying they're flat. Yeah, they are, they are, but they, and I think part of what helps with that, Asia, is um, in, in designing these, these, these flows, Mosaic gets very um, flat and contained when it's when it's in, you know, some sort of square rectangular form. So instead, and this is a good example. So instead of doing it that way, I I allowed the 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 strata themselves to break that that grid mm-hmm. and to be able to kind of flow outside of the framework, and that that's just a a way to um, kind of match up, you know, the, the difference in technique, you know, so you've, so this, which is primarily flat versus this puppy, this technique, which is very irregular. So, so they both in a sense have a little bit of irregularity around the, their perimeters. Yeah. And in terms of scale, like this one is about uh, four feet by six feet. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a sense of what's happening there, mm-hmm. and then, and then what I did for this installation was I just sort of mirrored um, the two walls. So the mosaic that's right across from the one that you just saw, this mosaic here, is uh, also roughly four feet by six feet. So there, there's a mirroring of of size and shape the overall size and shape of, of the two walls, but uh, the two different techniques. Yeah, astounding. I, I'm fascinated by how just the interruptions of the edge in the mosaic pieces visually ties them so strongly and dimensionally to those extremely dimensional strata pieces, which probably uh, sort of 
protrude forward, what, up to like 10 inches at times? It looks... Um, I would say more like about six to eight. Let me see if I can get us... Sorry, I'm not very good at... The profile. Uh-huh. I was going to try to get a side view of... So you could kind of see it from the very edge, but I may not be able to get there. Yeah. Kind of see it a little bit there. Right. You know, how they how they kind of flow out. Yeah. So then in the, I guess what one would call the South Gallery, let's see if I can, hang on just a second. I might be able to make this easier. No, okay. In the South Gallery is, just for one other orientation, Strata series for me is like, a, looking into the future, but way into the future when our whole built environment is just one, one more layer of geological time. So I, in making those pieces, I was thinking about it as a metaphor for, for the future and um, wanting just to make something beautiful out of, out of the debris of our built environment. Mm -hmm. And this series is called the Effectus series. Effectus is a Latin term, and it it's for uh, our mood, our emotions, you know, how we're responding or reacting to certain situations. And so I use these horse collars. See if it'll. No, it's not going to take me any closer. I use these horse collars as framing devices. So, but they're also kind of a. Um, uh, a way for um, to also act as a metaphor of, of where you know no matter what one thinks of climate change at this point, whether one agrees or not in terms of its existence. From my perspective, the climate doesn't really care what we think. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all in harness to it now, and so what I'm focused on is um, what what some of the things are that we're in harness to. I don't think this is gonna get me very close, but like, for example, this one here is completely surrounded. It's called Aura, and, it, and it's surrounded by uh, the time expired uh, uh, flags and parking meters. You know, so it's, it's, it's a emotional response that is almost, um, which I've seen in some people where, where they just feel like it, it, everything is too late now. There's nothing that can be done, you know, and, and that's an emotional response. Uh, this one here is called attachments. And it's, you know, it could also be about what we, we just can't quite give up, but, but we are, but we're not aware that we're actually kind of, you know, enslaved to, to what we can't give up. And this one is called Chrysalis, which you will remember, Asia, from the colonization show. And, and in, in, in the context of this particular um, series, I was thinking about how uh, this piece is um, almost like uh, some of the preppers that I've read about, you know, preparing for the end times. Mm -hmm. and 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 just being really focused on on um on trying on on a survival mode 
and thinking about it and just in terms of are they going to be completely subsumed or are they coming out of it you know I'm not really sure mm -hmm. and this is a piece called myopic and all of the pieces that are within there are um, lenses glass you know from glassware glass lenses and and just having a, a an extreme focus on um, whatever it is that they are so concerned about with um, and not necessarily being able to see the whole picture. And did this whole body of work that's inside these um, collars uh, kind of tell itself to you based on living with those extraordinary collection of collars for a while? How did, how did I did I did live with them for quite a while. Um, you know, I pick them up randomly whenever I whenever I find one, and um, and then I just start gathering stuff. You know, because these cast faces, um, there's two different types. It's the same. It's the same man, but two different types. That uh, some have uh, his mouth open. I cast him with his mouth open, and some with his mouth closed. And then because of the pores some of the pores are, are much more, you know, full facial, and some of them are a little more, you know, uh, angled, like, like the myopic one here. And just looking at what the, uh, kind of what the persona of that casting looks like with sitting inside of a, of a collar, and then from there starting to gather stuff, you know, around what, around this theme, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then this last one here is called um, So Much, So Little Time. And I just took um, clock parts and began to add them to this piece. Now there's one other, there's one other unifying thing um, besides the horse collars and the faces and that is that all of them have ah, all of them in in the very background that you sometimes see a lot of and sometimes see just a little bit of have definitions of the self that are collaged in behind the head on the on the back inside the um, horse collars and I this is an ongoing um, Thing that I've used uh, from time to time because years ago I found out in my Webster's dictionary that there's like three and a half pages of definitions of the self and and I just found that hilarious it's like oh my god you know how self-obsessed are we and and I just I just um, still to this day just really uh, like using that as almost like as a subtext you know whether it can be seen or not I know it's there and in a lot of these, you can you can begin to see bits of text if if it's if it's not completely covered up um, by the objects. That ties in so interestingly too with the way that perceptions of our environment and perceptions of identity are inextricably linked. So that inextricably linked. So that if somebody is sort of fatalistic, for example, like the parking meter one, um, that, that just seems like it's the way it is as opposed to the capacity to see it as the way that we see things, you know? Right. Yeah. I have a, 
I have a, a habit of when I hear something on the radio or whatever, I'm just immediately writing it on the studio wall. So I won't forget, you know, and one of them that even though the studio has been repainted a, a couple of times, there are some that it's like, oh, I still like that one. So I paint around it, to, you know, just to, to save it. And there's one by the front door that says, we see things as we are, you know, yeah. versus as, as reality. And then in the North Gallery, so, so uh, the Effectus series is really more just, you know, current personality profiles that, that I've observed or, or think about in terms of reacting to our, our current situation. And then in the North Gallery over here, this one is called, come on baby, let me come in, uh, Drawn and Quartered. And what I wanted to do here was, I had a couple of different series that I felt like felt would work within this, but I also wanted to make some uh, new work that was very specific to uh, our, our choices, our Northern landscape choices. And I've just been really fascinated about um, the, the three nuclear devices that we set off in in the 1970s on Namchika Island and wanted to kind of just do these collages that uh, allowed us to kind of know about it. I don't think it's going to let me get in any closer. When you say northern landscape choices, you're speaking to how the choices around management and intervention with the landscape? Yeah, and, and just our sheer arrogance in thinking, okay, now that this is our land, we get to do whatever we want. I mean, there's just a huge arrogance there. This one is from uh, Project Chariot, which is was um, a plan to uh, set off five nuclear bombs to create a uh, deep water port up by Point Hope. And uh, one of the things that, fortunately, that never happened, thanks to uh, the indigenous people up there, that they, they just started saying, ah, no, no thanks, we don't want that. And it started a, a much broad, bigger movement to keep that from happening. But one of the things that for me, you know, using these old timey kind of photos um, and, and just, playing around with it, I connected the smaller with the larger using the, the climate stripes because the climate stripes really speak to me of, it's this sort of arrogance that has got us into the place where we are now, you know, of, of, of a climate that's starting to feel out of control. So this, so there are two for uh, Project Chariot. This is a second one and two for Mchika Island. And what do you mean by climate? Did you say climate strike or stripe? Climate stripes. Oh, yeah. um, have you seen, it, it's a way of measuring temperature. So, so uh, there is, you know, they've been coming up with a lot of different kind of graphic interpretations of how, how do we explain visually what is happening 
with the climate. And one of one that just really resonates because you can use it in a lot of different ways is one that it just uses goes from blues to reds and it is you can take any section and say okay i want to know the average temperature from 1950 to now or maybe from 1850 to now and if they have the average yearly temperature the cooler temperatures are in the blues and you can just watch how our our world has heated up on on the average temperature yearly temperature and so it's just a great visual graphic that just sort of um, can say without any words what's going on. Wow, I was totally unaware of that. And Rika was just pointing out, Rika now is listening in that, that there's people who are knitting um, climate stripes into sweaters or scarves actually. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of those online. online. Now these, I, I'm not gonna be able to get us in close enough to really be able to see uh, what's going on very well with them. But these are what I call part of my inscrutable series. And behind these uh, lenses are, uh, are, are these cicadas that I came across when I was down at McCall Art Center in Charlotte. And it was cicada season and I just got so fascinated by them. I do have some photos of, of one of these um, in the, in the, the little keynote thing I did. And, and for me, the Inscrutable series is more of what we pay attention to and don't pay attention to. You know, there are all these other species and that sometimes we focus on, but often we just ignore. And I, and I was just wanting to focus myself on some of the smaller things, the smaller species that, um, that feel like they should have attention to. So, so again, this is just more of a, of a historical, for me, a, a historical thing. And then the last piece that's in this gallery is a, a mixed media kind of painting that I did for um, after the, the Turnigan arm fire from a few years ago where I was just wanting to kind of respond to it. Uh, Bruce and I were traveling on the, uh, down towards Girdwood and there, there were these helicopters that were flying over, going down into Turnigan Arms, scooping up water and taking it back across the highway to, to dump on the fire that was above us. And it was just this kind of fascinating system that was going on with all of the streaming water coming down and all of the steam coming up, and then you could see the 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 glow in the sky, you know, behind all of this um, steam and smoke. And I've done a few um, of these, not, and it's not always this, uh, event related, but I think of them as um, exercises in in atmosphere. It's just more of a visual. Mm -hmm. to for me to kind of play with and, and I find them very meditative to do um, because sorry Asia but sometimes painting is so easy I'd like I like to go to the painting <laughs> to uh, to give my brain or a, a rest or whatever because because these also I can only do so much and then I have to wait for it to dry so I go back to doing uh, sculptural stuff and then I come back to it it's just it's just like a really nice break for me. It's like a nice mental break. 
totally. I, I, I think that's what it draws me to it as well. Those are uh, of um, Pat Steer's paintings, you know, with those sustained yes. strips. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure I am, you know, oops, sorry. I'm sure I am standing on her shoulders to a certain degree with that, as well as, you know, with this work, uh, John Chamberlain comes to mind for me. Um, but anyway, so that's the gallery walk. Um, now, one great thing about having a chance to like get everything out of the studio and put it on walls is to discover other kind of uh, relationships or to discover other aspects of the work that I hadn't figured out in the studio because it, you know, there, there can only be one piece on the wall at a time. So I want to just show you um, a couple of things. I'm going to stop sharing this. And I just want to show you a couple of um, visuals here. So this series is actually here in part because of an earlier piece. Let me go back. There we go. Um, this is a piece that is in the engineering building at UAA and I was wanting to take all of the detritus from our built environment, you know, especially in engineering. And I realized that signage is actually kind of the signature of an engineer. So when you see like a curve sign for a road or 40 miles an hour, you know, all of that was engineered at some point. And the sign is kind of the engineer's signature at the end. That was my thinking in, in, in building this piece. But the, the one thing about it is that it was just so huge and that I wanted to go back and make smaller pieces. Normally you work the other way. You start with smaller till you finally get to the big piece. And in this case, the opportunity came to go really big first. So, so that's what took me back to the Stratus series. And in this case, um, the, not only was there signage, but there was also all of a lot of other detritus that was incorporated into this piece to just like re, really jam it full of, of our, our built environment. So when this chance came along, it's like, oh, well now I have a chance to go back and make some smaller pieces and pare them down, like take out all the ex excess stuff and just start working with that, that main stitching material that I used which were the signs, but still keep with the stratification layers. And I was still really interested in that. So one of the things that I found out is this is how it looks like in daylight or gallery light, but because of retro reflection, they also look like this. And, and that's, you know, thinking about, um, the signage is all a retro reflection. And if you have a light source that hits the piece and it will bounce back in the same, in the same direction as to the light source. So it's sort of like when you're driving, you know, and a sign will light up. Well, these, these have like two different personas depending on what type of light you see them in. So again, gallery lights, 
and then the retro reflection, which just really can transform a piece. So I never would have figured this out in the studio. It's just something that um, I was able to discover by, you know, Mike Conti and I screwing around in the gallery and figuring out uh, other ways that these things can emanate. Just by changing the lighting. And just by changing the lighting, yes. And uh, I've, now I'm, I'm really thinking about doing something with this material uh, outside. Um, I'd like to do like a, a temporary piece uh, that's like maybe along the coastal trail in for the depths of winter where they're, you know, everybody would have their headlamps on because they're skiing and it's four o'clock and it's already dark. And, and so it would be this sort of pedestrian notion of, of, of a piece illuminating or changing over time. So I just found that, I found that like a, a real cool plus for me to have that, um, time to play within the, the installation setting. And then finally, just because you couldn't really see it in the walkabout, here, here's a close-up detail of, of one of the pieces of the Inscrutable series so that you can see the, the cicada shell, you know, that's behind the lens. And is, what is the painting? Is it, is it um, oil paints or? Latex? Uh, nope, they're just uh, acrylic, acrylic washes. Mm -hmm. I love the tension between that sort of atmospheric looseness like weather or rain and then the um, really controlled and specific kind of microscopic mm -hmm. view that we're getting through that lens. It also seems to, I mean, cicadas seem to be one of those creatures that's kind of like a canary in a coal mine that is sort of telling us about climate change, as many creatures do, especially insects. Well, and it also just gives us a whole different sense of time because their cycle, um, even though there, there are some that come out every year, there's evidently like a, I forget what it is, but I think it's like a 17-year cycle where, the, where it's like it's a blue, baby boomer. Uh, yeah bulge of cicadas you know come out so there's you know we have our own sense of time but other species definitely have their own cycles of time that are very different from ours yeah and so what is you know like there's the plague from the human perspective as cicadas or grasshoppers might imply you know with one of those um seven plagues those big blooms of creatures but then from the that's just a human perspective. You know, it's their opportunity to rule. <laughs> right, right. It's our time now. So let's see. Talk to us a little bit about um, alchemy and the transformation of materials um, physically, but what that, what, what's really underpinning that is that sort of conceptual um, shift that you are, um, inviting and that's philosophical that's um that's really um one about the nature of of existence and in in which um you know this little cicada for example is like gold 
I mean, it also looks like a little nugget under the lens and it makes you really think about value differently. We, we spoke of that human and insect kind of hierarchy being reversed <laughs> um, when cicadas, you know, have their bloom. But it's also like the value of, of life and um, the value of the small um, being amplified and lifted up. I think part of that just comes from my um, fascination with the stuff around me, you know, things that, that I can see. Um, since I have a value for stuff that other people may not value or just see as trash or it's old, it's worn out, it's no longer of use. I don't always have that same um, reaction. So for me then it's about trying to hear the story of that thing, I guess is the best way to do it. I mean, I've got stuff that I've stored in the studio for several years that I can't use yet, mainly because I haven't come up with an idea that's cooler and stronger than they are just in their own existence. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 those objects are still thwarting me in that regard. I'm not, I'm not smart enough yet to be able to use them. Um, so so I, I've got a real appreciation, I guess, for that, that alchemic um, uh, transition, you know, it's, it's, it's to be respected as best I can to be willing to wait until, until I find the right use for something, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it reminds me of, you know, humans themselves and their stories while they're alive, um, you know, people have stories to tell. And when they pass, other people can tell their stories, but it doesn't often seem right to tell them while they're living and they're still kind of radiating their own truths, mm. you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yeah. Yeah, when, when something is still, in a sense, functional, it's still telling its story, its own story. You know, I mean, it's current story, so to speak. Yeah. We have a lot of wonderful um, artists from around Alaska in the room with us quietly listening. And I just wanted to thank you all for joining us from all over the state and um, from your studios and your homes. It's really meaningful to be um, together with you and, and Sheila here. And, and if any of you have um, questions or observations that you'd like to ask or share about Sheila's work, I invite you to just jump in. Any thoughts that um, are sticking with you? Just unmute and uh, interrupt us, join us. <laughs> well, Sheila, I'm always blown away by your work. <laughs> I'm just always blown away by your work. Um, and I, I think talking about these stories and objects, I think part of what you master is contextualizing these objects and these things. It's um, when you put 
one object next to another or assemble it in a different way, it creates its own story. Just mm -hmm. so it is contextualization also. And I think many artists do that, you know, contextualize and it says a different thing. But um, the three aspects, the three facets in this store, in the show is <sighs> incredible. I, I, I'm just in awe right now. And I love that presentation. Asia, I hope we do get it at Benel. That way of zooming in on in a show. I don't know what that program is called, but um, yeah, I think it's just something from the realty industry to, for doing house. Oh my gosh. But I, I, I think that it's totally applicable. Oh my gosh. What an incredible tool. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. It's thank you, Sheila. You're like way up here in my <laughs> yeah no kidding well i feel like in some ways rika we we work similarly because i think uh i think of your work and 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 you know how you you will find and gather and then yes recreate these amazing amazing pieces to wear yeah well, you're sweet, but it really resonated when you said, you know, I've got all these things in the studio and I'm not smart enough to use them yet. <laughs> I have things that have been in my studio for, God, you know, a couple of decades and um, mm -hmm. they will find their place or I'll right. get smart enough to apply it. But mm -hmm. wow. Knockout. Yeah. I'm thinking there's probably a few people listening in who, who feel that way about the work that they do. I'm thinking about, you know, Amy piling up yes. and discarded fibers until in some moment that story becomes apparent. And it could be through living with the work, handling the work, writing about and reading about things, which I, I know is, is very important to her. And I know it's really important to you. You're a really big reader Sheila and, and I've had some of the most fascinating discussions with you about um you know important important books what are you reading right now what's if mm. I ask um right now I'm I'm kind of on the down low so mm -hmm. other than New Yorkers I'm I'm kind of still sort of catching up you know and and then I'm just giving my brain a little bit of a rest yeah. as like, I mean, it was like a big bomb went off in my studio. So there's <laughs> like clearing that has to be done and, and all that. So, so then the other thing I'm doing, you know, I found uh, some uh, audio books uh, and just going back to, I, have you guys heard of uh, Phoebe Judge? This is Criminal. Hmm. No. Oh, it's, it's a podcast and she's, She's got the most amazing uh, voice. I just love her voice. And she, they now have, she, she and her team now have three different types of podcasts. Um, one is, is just um, talking about various sorts of crimes. And some of them are really great crimes. I mean, it, it's like the crime that you want to create, that you want to make. And some are much more serious and, and it just runs the gamut. But then there's another one called uh, This is Love, and it's about different sorts of relationships that people have had, not just with their own species, but other species. So that one's interesting. And then, and then 
the latest thing that I've been listening to with her is um, she started it um, at the beginning of the pandemic. She decided that she was, as she calls it, Phoebe reads a mystery. And she just started with classic mysteries and reads one chapter a day. So there's like several books now that are lined up there. And, and that's, been, that's been kind of my go-to thing, like go back to like really simple, you know? Yeah. Everything from Agatha Christie to, uh, oh, the, uh, Agatha Christie, Conan Doyle, you know, just really simple sorts of stuff. But she's also read some, some classics that I didn't know um, from both um, England and from the US, like the earliest woman writer who, who wrote what is considered the, the very first detective novel in the 1850s, you know? So it's just been kind of a, I'm just sort of reading that sort of, or listening to that sort of stuff while I clean up the studio. And it might sound um, random to be one that's interested in like detective stories, but there's that really strong tie-in to the work that you do that it, that it is like um, a kind of um, excavation, um, a, a kind of detective um, process of, dis of discerning what the story is in the material that attracts you. And so many times in your work, I've also seen like the use of that kind of lens in front of the eye and that kind of, that the use of sort of a, a monocle, you know, that is sort of like trying to um, zoom in on meaning, you know, and also kind of draw forth like the viewer to look really closely um, at a small... Well, I think I think for a lot of us, we're we're always just trying to find an answer to a question, and um, and my own background was from a, a very strict religious background, where where one was raised with there's the black and there's the white, you know, there's not subtlety, so there's that that notion of there's only one right answer. And I think that that idea of looking for the answer, you know, has, that's, that's probably connected in part to that type of, of um, rearing that, yeah. that I had way back then. That, that really um, kind of authoritarian rearing diminishes curiosity. You know, it kind of dismisses questions and inquiry with these pat, answers and so I can see how um, in response to that with your really hungry and, and curious mind you know you've prized the journey you've prized the investigation and even um, you know now I can see why you love to have all of these things in your studio just these objects around you to kind of like listen to them for a while just to, to live with them and think about what they're their questions or their stories might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a fascinating thing too. I, I started out in religious studies in college because I was curious about different ways of, of telling the human story, but I, but I too realized that I just had no tolerance for any sort of totalizing discourse. Any, any 
you know, it's, there's a lot of really interesting discourses out there, but, but anyone which attempt, attempts to kind of like encapsulate all of existence and try to explain things away is, is really um, and ultimately quite boring to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have a question here about your sign assemblage pieces. Can they be displayed outdoors? Are they weather tolerant? <laughs> well, they're signs. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're, they're uh, welded onto a, um, a aluminum panels. So yes, so yes, they can be. Wow, okay. They can be outside, yeah. Okay. Wonderful. That yeah. they would continue, I would assume, they would continue to patina and wear over mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Um, but for me, that just makes them even more interesting. I mean, some of them, some of the signs I got from my sign source, um, they were like a little too fresh. So I wanted, I wanted to add a, a little more interest to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did you do with those? Did you, did you bury them or bash them or did you just like put them in the backyard for a while? Uh, I usually would like just do a sanding to them to kind of create a little more abrasion on them. And, and so some of those, uh, pieces that you would see at, at night, those ones I showed you, the retro reflection pieces, um, some of that texture would have been from, I think it was on the green in particular that was like, oh, this is just too, too clean. Um, just using a sanding thing and then, and then because of what the retro reflection does, it highlights the, you know, the, those, those marks. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Bruce. It's nice to see you, Bruce. Um, you, you are um, such an important um, sort of co-conspirator to the, to the um, management of many of Sheila's projects. And especially, I know, you know, some of these bigger um, public and um, 1% type installations. And I'm just wondering what sort of um, questions or thoughts that I haven't thought of that you may have been thinking about while we've been talking. As we um, wind down, I'm so pleased to see you and ask you to add your voice. Well, I didn't, I didn't turn on the camera because I wanted to become part of the, the presentation, but I just wanted to say hi. But, um, well, one thing that I, I did think of, I know that lots of artists for a long time have, have used trash and cast off materials to call attention to sort of you know the hum the calamities that human beings have have created i think of that work that that the some artists under the auspices of the museum did around the gyre for example i mean that you know where there was just like and i was just curious like what is it about a sign like a common everyday garden variety like road sign that kind of because that you could have layered these strata series with different kinds of cast off materials but you stuck with the sign and i get the feeling you feel like there's something really kind of emblematic or uh, kind of fundamental about the sign as a 
um, kind of prototypical example of of the of, of humans leaving their mark. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah, true, or I, is that just my perception? It, it, I think it does go beyond. You know uh, what I talked about earlier about. You know, it's the engineer's signature. You know, for for all the design work, say that went into a road or or something like that. But signs are also. They're just a very human expression, I think. And we, we use signs to orient ourselves, to protect ourselves, to keep us safe, you know, and, and, and it- Well, and, and, to, and to kind of like boss people around. Well, there's that too, yeah, yeah. And so, so there, there's something nice about deconstructing all of those things that signs are supposedly supposed to be used for and and use them in a different expression that that uh, may speak to some some other kind of ethereal beauty or some other or or to use them to redirect use the signs to redirect what we're paying attention to you know rather than paying attention to the sign itself. Well, and it's also in keeping with your personality, your way of being, which is so anti-authoritarian. <laughs> oh yeah, there is that. You've completely exploded the sign into sort of like this fragmented mystery where we stare at it and think, what is, what's the message that was mm -hmm. deconstructed here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, there. Yeah, that's funny that you said that because there is one of this the, the, one of the signs, uh, and it's the only one I know of for sure. Where there's kind of a puzzle within the piece that is created by the text from the sign. You can just sort of make out from partial bits the word "stop," and yeah, to Asia's point, you've just sort of like exploded it. And do you know the one I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. I know. Can you show that? Um, oh, it's right there. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's kind of far back. Let me see yeah. if I can pull it up. And it's at an angle that's not really very readable, but but I I just I love that because most of the text is just kind of like random disassociated letters and so on. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, it is made from. A, <laughs> bits of a stop sign soon. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, a command. Looked at that for a while and didn't notice that it had four letters, just four simple letters repeated in it because it's, yeah, it's, it's so convoluted wonderfully. And then I guess the only other thing I thought of was Tarika's point. Like the first thing I thought of when Sheila demonstrated the retro re reflectivity of these signs and how incredibly transforming that is, how they just turn into a whole different piece all of a sudden, was like, I want one of these for outside. Like, I can't afford them, but if I could, <laughs> I, I would want one that was like, you know, at the end of my driveway or along my street so that like cars in the neighborhood would be forced to like look at artwork that, yeah, look at that. That just knocks me out. It, it flips me out. 
flips me off. Isn't, I mean, isn't that just sort of a genius and historic, hysterical kind of like possibility for an airport or something where there's so many directives and then you come upon a piece of, you know, art that just, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just completely um, grips you with, with mystery and uncertainty about everything from direction and meaning. To, <laughs> love that. It's not telling you any. It's not telling you to do anything except pay attention. Right, right. You know, there's also the notion of there. When I drive in any major city, Anchorage being one of them, there's so much signage and everyone calling for attention. Private businesses. It just becomes mm. a cacophony of texture, mm. and none of it catches your attention because mm-hmm. it's just too much. And place. that's this is somewhat like that but layered more artistically but it's almost becomes textural using a similar material but um i find signage people will say well didn't you see the sign it's like how and how could i it, <laughs> the whole landscape is signage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. wow yeah um this piece that that's on there right now really makes me think of what you're talking about rika because it just seems to have kind of like this, it's just about to, it's like a painting that's about to explode. You know, it just comes off um, to me as very painterly, but there's some sort of bound up energy that that if I stand in front of it too long, it, you know, it, it'll just explode in front of me kind of thing, yeah. Have you ever heard of Boris Bali? He's a jewelry maker and furniture maker, and he uses signs. And I Boris Bali. Boris Bali, and I have a pen. B a l i. B a l l y, right? L l y. Okay, L-L-Y. I'll check him out. And I have a brooch of his that's from a stop sign, so, but it's very close up, so it's just a, you know, a kind of a what do you call that marquee shape? And, mm-hmm. and I love that quality of, uh, you know, when light hits it, it's reflective mm-hmm. and it's just the coolest, simplest. It's one of my favorite pens, um, but he makes nice. chairs and platters and all that. So he's uh-huh. going to have a similar deal with the highway department that you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, all, all our contemporary signs are made out of aluminum now. So they're, they're lightweights. Uh-huh. They are, um, you know, you can use all of your, since it's non-ferrous, you can use all of your uh, wood, wood blades to, to cut oh, and, wow. you know, it, and uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's a pretty useful kind of uh, material in that regard. Wow. I just don't know anybody who's exploited it in the, the way that you have. I know. Mm. I know. Yeah, especially at this scale, new. it's kind of an Alaskan oh level um, answer of like abundance <laughs> compared to Boris Bali's small fragments. Right, right. Although he does make chairs and stuff, but no, but they're very singular compared to this. This is just awesome. It sounds like he, he uses them almost like as a craftsperson, like these really well designed but yeah. functional. Yeah. 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 And he has a warehouse filled with them. So he uses forklifts, you know, and, and so it's wow. on a scale that, um, 
yeah, he must be doing an awful lot of it and wow. not by himself, obviously, because yeah. it's too much. Yeah. I want one of these pieces. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Sheila, for joining us today and, and Enrica to everybody else that's offered some really nice comments. If we pop out of screen share, Sheila, I'll just oh, make yeah. a quick copy of the comments, including some other books and things that were mentioned. Um, thank you all so much. Thank you. If you thank want. You. Thank you. Yeah. It's great you. to see you. Thanks all. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye, bye. Bye. Lovely to see you, Petra. Good to see bye you guys. Bye. Yeah. Bye. yeah.